time of praise and thanks for uh, Thanksgiving. It's always been a lot of fun. And I've been teaching out here at Harvest uh, since 1997, 18 years. I've been pastor out here for 16, and I have never taught through the book of First Practice. So I have no idea what I'm doing. So, take a look at First Chronicles. Yeah, look at chapter 1. You see all those names? Look at chapter 2. Chapter 3. Chapter 4. Chapter 5. Chapter 6. Chapter 7. Chapter 8. Chapter 9. And then finally chapter 10, Saul dies. Um, it's called Chronicles. Yeah, we're, still, yeah, we're, we're, we're picking it up in chapter 11. I told Dawn we're starting Chronicles. She goes, are you going to do Second Chronicles 2? And I said, yeah. She goes, I'm going to take a year off. She said, from Wednesday nights. Um, seriously, look at that. Do you know how many names are in there? This is why people, when they say, oh, I'm going to read through the Bible, they get to Chronicles. They stop. You know how I know that's true? Because that's what I did. I first got saved. I tell you guys all the time, if you're going to start out the Bible, do not start in Genesis. Learn about Jesus. Learn about your Savior. So I got saved in 93, and I said, I'm going to read through the Bible. I started in Genesis. Genesis is a pretty exciting book. Exodus is pretty good. Okay, Leviticus was tough. Numbers is pretty good. Deuteronomy is really tough. Joshua was good. You know, you get through them. I got to First Chronicles. I couldn't do it anymore. I tried. I really tried. Nine chapters of name after name. Names that are never mentioned sometimes in any other part of the Bible. Why are they in there? Never thought about that. Think about this. Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. All Scripture. Jesus said the whole book is written by Him. Jesus said in Matthew five eighteen, He talks about this idea of the jot and the tittle. Do you remember that? This is what he says. He goes, For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, that the jot or tittle will not. And that's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle is the best way to describe it is the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. And some people believe that even those little parts mean something in God's word. That's how important those things are. And then Paul wrote in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things became our examples. These people are our examples that we're supposed to learn from them. So that's what we're going to do. Now we joke when we started Job that by the end of Job it would be the worship team, me and Dustin. And you guys made it through Job. We're going to make it through Chronicles. And you know what I love about this? I'm excited. I look at this stuff and I say, okay, Lord, you put this stuff in here. What, what is there? And I tell you, we're going to do the first five chapters tonight. We're going to finish up the genealogy next week. We're not going to want to spend two chapters on genealogy. And then when we get into Chronicles, we're going to kind of teach us the way we do the show. We're going to talk about a king. Okay, what did the king do that was good? What did the king do that was bad? How does this apply to our lives? That's what we're going to do in this study. But are you not at all fascinated by these hundreds of names? You're just wondering, why are they in there? Maybe you're not. That's okay. I love Jesus. And I just am so excited to see what God has to say in this. So the first section of this is Adam to Abraham, then you have Abraham to Isaac, then he tells the twelve tribes, then the captives that have returned, and then he goes into Saul's lineage. Everybody's listed. You know what that means? 
That means when God says that he knows the hairs on your head, it means he really does mean it. If you were part of Israel, the captives returning, or if you were one of the lineage of Judah or Reuben, you're in there because God cares about you and God loves you. And I think that is so amazing. See, we look at these chapters and we say, okay, this is monotonous, this is boring, what is the point? I look at this, and this is a father up in heaven saying, man, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Zibion. Remember Zibion? What about Anna? Or Dishon? Or Ezra? I don't know who these guys are, but you know who God Father loves. And it's like when I look through home videos of our kids, if I would invite you over to our house and say, hey, I'm going to spend the next four hours watching home videos of my children, you politely would find a way to get out of it, right? They're not your kids. You don't have that attachment. We don't know these names, so I look at these names and I start saying, who's Amon and Abba? Who's Nashon? I don't know. But God says, oh, Nashon. I love Nashon. And what a blessing it is to go through this. So, every jot and tittle means something. Every letter, the smallest letter, the dots of the I's and crosses of the T. The whole book is written about Jesus. These people are given to us as examples of what to do and what not to do. And as we go through this tonight, that's what we're going to see. We're going to talk about these people and say, hey, first off, who are they? And how does it apply to us? So let's just jump right into this. Guess where it starts? Verse 1. Adam. It's a great place to start. This book starts at the beginning of time. Adam. Then he had Seth and Enosh. We can go down the line. You recognize some of these names. Verse 3, Enoch walked with God and was no more. Methuselah, who lived longest. Verse 4, you have Noah. And then you have Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. And then he starts breaking down the descendants of Jephthah and the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Ham. Hey, let's check out some of these names. First one, verse 10. Cush the god Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. Wouldn't you like to be known as a mighty one on the earth? That's Nimrod. You know what Nimrod's name means? Rebellion. You know what Nimrod did? Nimrod built the city of Babel. He was a mighty hunter on the earth. That's what it says back in Genesis, and that's what it says here. I'm just going to give you references. You can study this out some more if you want. In Genesis 10, it talks about Nimrod. He was a mighty hunter on the earth. If you break that down in the original Hebrew, you know what that means? He was a mighty hunter of man. Nimrod was the first dictator of the world. And so what Nimrod wanted to do, he wanted to hunt men, build kingdoms, and he built Babel. Now, we all know what happens at Babel. That's where they decided to build a tower to heaven. So Nimrod, verse 10, a mighty one on the earth. Yeah, he's mighty, but not in a godly good way. He's mighty in the sense of man. And what you see starting in verse 10 on, you start seeing kingdom building. You start seeing people wanting their own kingdoms and their own power and their own authority. And Nimrod's the one that started this because he's a hunter of men. Think about that. First name mentioned, Adam, what do you do? I said, well, what's next after Adam? We don't even have Cain and Abel mentioned. Why? Because Abel's dead and Cain's cursed. A few names later, we got Noah in verse 4. The whole world's flooded. And then we got Nimrod. who's already started to build kingdoms. This is the sinful nature of man. What else do we got? It's chapter 1, verse 19. To Eber, if you ever wonder where you get the name Hebrew from, it comes from the name Eber. We're born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days, the earth was divided. That's kind of a fascinating. His name means divided. What is the earth divided? Some people believe that's when the Tower of Babel happened. That's when the earth was divided into languages. 
Some people even go one step further and just someone throw this out there. We don't know for sure. Some people believe that it literally means this is when the earth was divided. Like the earth was divided. Like the earth, the land, continents were spread apart. Things like that happened. We don't know for sure, but something major happened in his time frame. The earth was divided. It could have been the Tower of Babel. We don't know. A couple other little things here in chapter 1, verse 32. The son's born to Katara. Katara, we don't talk about her a lot. That was Abraham's second wife. Isn't it fascinating? Sarah's not mentioned, but the concubine is. Now, how do you feel if you're Sarah? There's going to be a lot of grace in these chapters. You're going to see names. That why did they get in there? Because God's a God of grace. Look at verse 34. Abraham begot Isaac. The sons of Isaac were Esau and Israel. Well, no, the sons of Isaac were Esau and Jacob. Jacob had a name change. Remember that? See, this is the neat thing. If you're a note-taker, look at verse 34. God wants to change your name. Revelation 2, Revelation 3, the Lord promises you're going to have a new name. You have a new name because you're a new creation in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus loved changing people's names. Jesus was like that guy you work with that's just going to give you a nickname, that's what he's going to call you. You're no longer, I'm not going to call you Peter. I'm going to not call you Titus, I'm going to call you Peter. See, Israel. Well, why not Jacob? Because what does the name Jacob mean? Jacob means deceit. Jacob means liar. God says, I'm not looking at you that way anymore, Jacob. I'm looking at you as Israel. You are the father of Israel. Aren't you thankful that your father in heaven, when he looks down on you, he looks at you as a God of grace and love and mercy? See, the world will never let go of some of the stupid choices you've made. They never will. You can never let it go. But God says, I'm a God of second chances, third chances. Well, fill in the blank. You are a new creation that gets a new name for all of eternity. And right here you see with Jacob, he's not Jacob, deceitful. Nothing about him being a liar. Nothing about stealing the birthright. You just see him called Israel. What a blessing that is. Now as we get into chapter 2, these were the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulon, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, God, and Gavin, Asher. The sons of Judah. Now, well, hold on a second here real quick. Sons of Judah. Was Judah the firstborn? No. Why don't we get to talk about Judah first? Well, let's find out. Jump ahead to 1 Chronicles 5. God's a God of grace. God's a mercy. But you know what God is? God's a God of honesty. Verse 1. Chapter 5. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. Remember what Reuben did? Reuben decided to sleep with his dad's concubine. Now, when that happened in Genesis, uh, let me check my notes here, it happened in Genesis 35, he slept with Billah. Not a whole lot was said about it. But back in Genesis 49 then, when Jacob is blessing his children, he looks at Reuben and he says, you're not going to prosper. The reason you're not going to prosper is because you defiled me there. See, if you're a note taker, write this down, Numbers 32, 23. Your sin will find you out. I don't like that verse, but that's the truth. Your sin will find you out. If we do something we shouldn't do, and we can cover our tracks and we can hide it, unless we come to the Lord and make confession and repentance, 
that sin is going to pop back up and cause so much problems later on. Galatians 6 says that you reap what you sow. Reuben reaped this. He sowed by committing this sexual morality with his father's concubine. And next thing you know, when it comes time for the blessing, Reuben, firstborn, should have got it. No, through the Lord, Reuben doesn't get it. He's not allowed. And in fact, it says that you will not excel, Reuben. As far as we can tell in the Bible, there's no prophet, there's no king, there's no judge that came from the tribe of Reuben. Nothing. Reuben just did nothing. Because what happened was he wanted to fulfill the lust of the flesh rather than following the spirit. And when you follow the flesh, guess what happens? You're completely utterly fruitless. Nothing good comes out of it. Yeah, you have your moment of fun for a while, but as time goes on, there's nothing. And that's exactly what happened with Reuben. Nothing came out of it. And let's look at the rest of this honesty here. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 3. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These three were born to him by the daughters of Shua, the Canaanite. Ur, the firstborn of Judah, was wicked in the second Lord, so he killed them. Okay, that's the God of love we serve right there. Now, the Bible does not say what he did. It doesn't say here, it doesn't say in Genesis what he did. Now, we know what happens later on, but it doesn't say anything. God will not put up with wickedness. You know, he's a God of love. We've been talking about this a lot. God is a God of love. You know, we were going through Jonah in small groups. God's got a second chance, third chances, fourth chances. God did not want to see Nineveh destroyed. He wanted to see Nineveh saved. Ezekiel, God says, I have no desire to see the wicked judge. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So whatever Ur did in verse 3, God says, I can't let you continue, and I have to take you out. See, that's the God that people focus on, but what they don't realize is God just judged them because of wickedness. And what really people need to realize, if our world continues down this path of wickedness, that's what God's going to do. He's going to judge it. Because God will not put up with wickedness. And you see this constantly being repeated. Look at verse 7, same chapter. The son of Carmel was Akar, the troubler of Israel, who transgressed in the accursed thing. What's he talking about there? It's a little bit of a name change. This guy's name is Achan. Achan is the guy back when after they defeated Jericho, if you remember the rules. Don't take anything from Jericho. It's all the Lord's. You didn't do anything. See, everybody talks about when Israel defeated Jericho. Go back and read the story. What did Israel do? They walked around and blew horns for a week. God defeated Jericho. So by Achan taking something from Jericho, he's basically saying, look what I did. I earned this. And God made it clear, don't take anything. Achan took something, you know what happened. He hid it in his tent, it is found out, and then him and his family is judged. God doesn't put up with wickedness. Reuben, you're out. You know what, you're going to walk in that sin, I can't have you. Err, you're wicked, you're out. Achan, verse 7, you're going to be unrepentant, you're out. But remember we said this. Whenever you see judgment, what do you need to look for? Grace. Guess what happens here in chapter 2? Look at verse 4. And Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Zerah, all the sons of Judah were five. See, this is the thing. When you just read these names, you don't catch that. Who's Tamar? Tamar in Genesis 38 is this. Tamar was the wife of Ur that was killed. Well, Judah promised his daughter-in-law another husband. He says, I'll give you one of my other sons to make up for the son that just died unexpectedly here. But he never did. Now, why didn't he? Best we can figure is he did one of his other sons to die. So he has promised Tamar another son. 
She's waiting, waiting patiently, waiting patiently. Never gets one. So do you remember what she does? Genesis 38. She dresses up like a prostitute. She dresses up like a prostitute and goes stands by the road. Guess who walks by? Father-in-law Judah. Now she's hiding herself like a prostitute. So he's interested. He pays the fee. They sleep together. And next thing she knows, there's the big reveal, like in Hollywood. Hey, I'm your daughter-in-law. And Judah says, you are more righteous than me. Okay, hold on. You dress up like a prostitute. You sell yourself because you couldn't get a husband. You sleep with your father-in-law. You're more righteous than him. You know what happens with Tamar? Guess what? Matthew chapter 1, she's listed in the lineage of Jesus. Is that not grace? See, we see Ur being judged. We see Achan being judged. We see Reuben being judged. But smack dab in the middle of this judgment, here's this funky story of a woman that acted like a prostitute to get a child. And Jesus says in Matthew 1, hey, I want to claim her in my lineage. That's grace. And that's what I love about these genealogies. It's so easy to focus on what everybody did wrong. But hidden in the midst of this is this woman that God said, I want to give you another chance. And you know that honestly, when we look around the body of Christ, and there's tomorrow's all over the place. People that really did some stupid stuff, and God says, I still want to love you. I still want to bless you. I still want to give you mercy. I remember years ago, there was a gal coming out here, got saved, got baptized. And it was doing pretty good, and then she just hit this wall. And the wall that she hit was she couldn't believe that the Lord really forgave her for everything. And we'd sit down and talk to her, we'd share with her the scriptures of, of Paul, where Paul says, I put my past behind me and I press on towards the goal of Christ. And we tried to talk to her about forgiveness and the beautifulness of God separates your sin as far as the east is from the west and grace and mercy. And she never got it. And just sit there and you're thinking, and she's going to walk now the rest of her life with this burden of I'm not good enough and, I'm, and I'm, my sins aren't taken care of. How could God love me? Those are lies from the pit of hell. And in the midst of this genealogy of wickedness and people doing things they shouldn't do, God's giving grace to this gal. What a beautiful picture that is. Some other quick names in chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz, excuse me, verse 12. And Boaz. Boaz there, Ruth's husband. Remember Ruth's husband? This is David's great-grandpa, if you're keeping track of stuff, if you didn't know that. So it makes Ruth David's great-grandma. So think about that the next time you go through Ruth and Boaz. That's David's great-grandma and David's great-grandma. You see David mentioned there, too. He is born, verse 15. And guess what happens in verse 16? You see Abishah, Joab, and Ashiel. Now, if you know the book of Kings, those guys are David's generals and David's mighty men. But what you find out in Chronicles, those are also David's nephews. Isn't that kind of fascinating? David had his own little mom family. He would send out his nephews to go take people out. That's what's going on. So when you read Joab now in Kings, and God's and David's telling Joab, go kill him, that's Uncle David telling nephew Joab, go take him out. I mean, it really is this kind of almost family type thing here. So you have David's generals, and you have David's nephews that are going on. And that's what you have going on in the first two chapters there. Now, it gets really good here. This just keeps building. We're going to take a quick break. If you got any quick questions, comments, on people use it. Brian? Uh, in chapter 1, it gives the lineages of uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And yes. I know we've gone over this sort of stuff before, but it's pretty interesting. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Tubal, Meshach, and those are you know European uh, settlers, and uh, Meshach, and Magog, 
those specifically Russia and Moscow. Yep. Then you got the, the sons of Ham, Canaan uh, and Cush and uh, Egypt and Africa, basically, where they settled. And then the sons of Shem, which we have the lineage of uh, Abraham and all his friends. So it's basically the Middle Eastern, uh, the Hebrew race, basically. So. Yeah. And that's where it talks about how the whole world descended from these three. Like you said, Ham went to the African region, uh, Jephthah is more of the European region, and uh, Shem's family stayed in the Middle Eastern region, and that's where the descent all came from. But yeah, it's one of those details that if you're just reading through this straight, you're not going to pick that up. You have to do research. You have to yep. you know, delve into it in order to fully understand what's going on here. And that's the beauty of this type of stuff. We have a tendency when we get to these things, and, and that's not going to be these genealogies can be overwhelming. They, they really can. And, and it's a lot of studying. It's a lot of saying, okay, who is this name? Why does this name sound familiar? How does this all come together? But when you really start putting these puzzle pieces together, it is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Anybody else have anything in the corner of the Yeah, Kim. Yeah, that's the thing is when you start mentioning the descendants of Jephthah and some of these names that Ryan is mentioning, Tina's mentioning, when you go to Ezekiel, you see those names mentioned again. And now what you can do is you can take what you read in Chronicles, you can take what you read in Ezekiel, now you can take what you read in Revelation, and these puzzle pieces all start coming together. And I think that's the problem people have with the Bible. This is why it says in Timothy that we're supposed to be diligent, study to prove this. It's a lot of work to puzzle pieces together. If you just know nothing else, and you read Chronicles 1-9, through what is the purpose of this? But as you're reading Chronicles, next thing you know, you're in Genesis, and you're in Numbers, and next thing you know, you're in here and there, and it all just starts coming together. It's beautiful. Anybody else got anything? Alright, here's my favorite one. This is uh, Chronicles 3 now. Verse 1. Now these are the sons of David. So now we're going to follow David's line for a while. We're born to him in Hebron. Firstborn was Ammon by Ammonhem, the Jezreelites, the second Daniel by Abigail, the Chronotus, the third Absalom, the son of And it kind of goes on and on and on and on. One thing you realize here, it mentions David had 19 sons. See, a lot of us don't think about that. We think of Solomon, maybe Absalom, 19 boys by numerous, numerous women. Now, this has caused problems for some people. You have to remember the Bible presents us all. And our good, our bad, and our ugly. It, it never once defends David for having multiple wives. In fact, if you study out the Bible, anytime you run into a man that had multiple wives, he has multiple problems. And, I, and I'm not making a comment about women. Please don't take that. That's not God's plan. God's plan was one man, one woman, and that's the way it works. When you start seeing this, this idea of multiplying wives and concubines, you're multiplying problems. Major problems. Remember what it says in Proverbs. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Not he who finds wives finds a good thing. It's not good. So David has major problems. And if you study out the life of David, he has family problems all over the place. He's got a son raping a daughter. He's got a son rebelling at him. He's got another son trying to kill one of his sons. It's a mess. It's a mess. And if that's not a mess enough, well, we have to mention this in verse 5. 
And these are born to him in Jerusalem, Shimeon, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, for by Bathsheba, the daughter of Meal. Now, depending on your translation, and I need living translation, she's Bathsheba. Now, we all know what happened with Bathsheba. David didn't have enough of his other wives, so he sees Bathsheba, he wants Bathsheba, and you know the story. Bathsheba's already married, so he has an affair, then he has to get her husband killed, Uriah. It's a mess. The Nathan the prophet has to come in and publicly rebuke David. It's awful. But this is the beauty of genealogies. Did you catch this in verse 5? What is the third son of Solomon that by Shimei? Do you see what her name, his name is? The third son. Everybody say it. His name was Nathan. Who's the prophet that came in to rebuke David? Nathan. David named one of his kids after the prophet that came in to rebuke him. Did you catch that? Nathan the prophet who came in to rebuke David for this affair. David, and I'm I'm piecing this together, take it or leave it, he named one of his kids after him. Was David's heart so touched by someone who would come and speak honestly to him? Was David's heart so touched by a man that would stand up and say, David, I love you, but you're wrong? He named one of his kids after him. Isn't that fascinating? I had a situation years ago where there was a, there was a guy out there that we discipled, did marriage counseling with, you know, we invested and invested and invested. Uh, he became disgruntled with me, became disgruntled with the church, and left. Wrote angry letters. Uh, I still have them. I keep angry letters to humble myself. I remember one letter he wrote me ended with, repent, repent, repent. He had to say it three times. Wow. A couple years ago, I get a phone call from him. He says, hey, I just want to let you know, thank you for all that time you spent discipling me. It's like, dude, are you still angry at me? I mean, I, you know, how are we? Are we good now? Everything's good now. And I, sometimes I've noticed that people that I've had really rough conversations with, and it does not go good, and there's a season of disgruntledness. Next thing you know, you come back full circle, it's like, thanks for being straightforward. Thanks for talking to me. And there's hopefully a brotherly love there when you say, I care enough about you to be honest with you. Here's Nathan. He names one of his kids after him. I find that absolutely fascinating here. So what happens down the rest of chapter 3, you have the different kings of Judah followed by the people that lived after the captivity. That's fine. Jump ahead to chapter 4, verse 9. Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, because I bore him in pain. Jabez's name means sorrow or pain. Literally, he will cause pain. Moms, what would your child have to do to you to make you name him? He will cause pain. So that's his name. Verse 10. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand will be with me, and that you will keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he Guys, remember 15 years ago when the prayer of Jabez was the biggest thing that ever happened in the church? This is the prayer of Jabez right here. That took off back in 2000. I remember I first became pastor out here, and everybody was talking about the prayer of Jabez. And they took the prayer of Jabez, and they wrote books about it. They did this, and they did that. And you know what happens when you have something good that God likes to do? You start seeing it become twisted. As I remember 15 years ago, uh, there was people that were involved in a certain business thing, and they took the prayer of Jabez, and that became their prayer. And they would have their business meetings, and they would pray, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory. 
They were in sales. I'm not making that up. So all of a sudden it became not about the Lord. It became about us. See, if you just read this prayer, this prayer is all about God. God, bless me. God, your hand be with me. God, you keep me from evil. What happened was typical human nature. We took this wonderful prayer and we made it all about us. Lord, enlarge my territory. Lord, you bless me. No, it's not about prosperity. It's not about any of that. It's Lord, use me. Lord, bless me so I may bless others and bless you. Lord, enlarge my territory. Enlarge the influence I can have to be a light and a witness for you. Lord, your hand be upon me. Lord, you be with me. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16. We're supposed to let our light shine before others that they may see our good works and do what? Glorify our Father in heaven. The purpose of God doing something in my life is not to glorify me, not to glorify Harvest Fellowship. It's to glorify Jesus Christ. So if something happens in our life, all the glory goes to heaven. It's not about me. It's about the message. It's not about the church. It's about Christ. That's what it's supposed to be. What does it say in James 4, verse 16? The prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Jabez's prayer was powerful. God granted him what he requested, verse 10. Because why? The Lord does want to bless you. Joshua 1, 8. Do not let this book of law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, so that way you will be prosperous. Now, we have to stop. What's your definition of prosperous? Do you realize that? God has promised you prosperity. God has promised you blessing. Now, what is that definition to you? Prosperity is 5,000 square foot house, right? Prosperity is a 2016 vehicle. Prosperity is six figures income. I don't know if that's God's definition of prosperity. You ever think that prosperity may be that you're just a light and a witness for the Lord and you can impact people for Christ more than you can ever imagine? While driving your 1990 car, living in your 1,000 square foot home, making $20,000 a year, but you're prosperous. See, we have to be careful. It's just like in Romans 8, 28 when it says that God works for the good of all things. I've had people come up to me and say, well, I don't think this is good. It's not your definition of good. It's God's definition of God wants to bless you. Well, what is your definition of being blessed? I don't care what your definition is. I don't care what my definition is. I want what God's blessings are for me. There are certain things that happen in my life I do not look at as a blessing. God says it is. There are certain things in my life I look at, and that was a complete, utter failure. God says, no, it's prosperous. You just haven't seen it yet. We've got to trust it. Remember, it's not about enlarging my territory or blessing me. Lord, it's about you. It's about you. Wherever you live and wherever you work, it's about Christ. And to prove that, jump down to chapter 4. Look at verse 22. And Jotham, the men of Chosabah, and Joash, and Sarah, who ruled in Moab, and Jeshuba, Lehim. Now the records are ancient. Okay? Look at verse 23. These were the potters. People that made pottery. And those who built in Netiam and Gerdorah, where they dwelt with the king for his work. He just lists a whole bunch of potters who lived with the king and worked for the king. Now just take this and run with it. I don't know what you do for a living. You probably don't make pottery. But whatever you do for a living, you're doing it for the king. Your paycheck may be signed by a company. Your paycheck may be signed by a person. You don't work for them. You work for the king. That is your whole focus. Remember Colossians 3.23. 
work as if working for the Lord, not for man. These guys right here, they dwelt and worked for the king. And that is a great reminder to us that wherever you live, wherever you work, it's not about you, it's about the king. And you may have a job that you can't stand, but if the king has put you there, you're going to be a light witness in that job. Once again, some other business, some other person may sign your paychecks, but you work for the king. I don't know what you made for him, but you work for him. And that's what you see here. Hey, let's finish up chapter 5. Finally, back to Reuben. We already read verses 1 and 2. We know what happened there. Reuben messed up. We covered that earlier. So let's jump ahead here to the end of uh, chapter 5 about Reuben's descendants. Let's go ahead to verse 20. And they were helped against them, and the Hagarites were delivered into their hand, and all who were with them, for they cried out to God in battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. But you see happening here is you have the tribe of Reuben, verse 18, the Reuben and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh all got together, and they fought the uh, Hagarites, excuse me, Reuben, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, verse 18, all got together and fought the Hagarites, and verse 20. And look what they did. They cried out to God in the battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him, verse 20. I love that. You're in a battle every day of your life. Are you crying out to the Lord in that battle? It reminds me of what David said when he went into battle with Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, we don't have time, you can write it down. 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. See, right now, you may have come in tonight and you feel a little defeated. You're in the midst of the battle and you're ready to give up. Verse 20 is for you. Cry out to God in the battle and he hears your prayer. He hears it. In the midst of the battle, he hears it. And guess what happens? Verse 22. For many fell dead because the war was God's. It's God's battle, not yours. When did we start thinking it was our responsibility? It's my job to save somebody? It's my job to lead them to the Lord? No, it's my job to introduce them to Jesus Christ. That's all I gotta do. It's my job to fix that marriage? No, it's my job to point that marriage back to biblical truth and hope they want to do it. You know, it's my job to get that guy off drugs? No, it's my job to tell him that Christ will never leave him, nor forsake him, and he has to choose what he wants to do. The battle is the Lord's. If you think the battle is yours, you're throwing a burden on you that God didn't give you. What are you supposed to do? Verse 20, cry out to the Lord, put your trust in him. Verse 22, the war was God's. And amen. Now, I wish we could end right there, but guess what? Verse 23. So the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh dwelt in the land. Their numbers increased from Bashan to Baal. And you can kind of see what happens. But look at verse 25. They were unfaithful to the God of their fathers and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Hul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath, Assyria, king of Assyria, and he carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. So wait a second, these guys just have victory in verse 20, and next thing you know, they're carried away into captivity a little bit later. You know why? I'm going to show you. Dusty, can you put that slide up real quick? It's kind of a tough map to see, and I hope you can kind of follow it. That big black line going down the middle is the Jordan River, coming up out of the Dead Sea right here. You can see that. 
So you've got the Dead Sea, Jordan River going up. Now look to the right. You have Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Those are the three tribes that we just talked about that just got taken over by Syria. Now, when you look at that map, and you have Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben to the right, do you notice where all the other tribes of Israel are? They're on the other side of the Jordan. If you would go back in time thousands of years ago, you would want the Jordan River to be a natural barrier between you and your enemy. But if you want to study this out, this is what happened. In Numbers 32, as they are coming across, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben got tired. So they're getting ready to cross the Jordan. Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben go to Moses in Numbers 32 and say, Do you care if we just plant ourselves to the east of the Jordan? And, and Moses says, No, come across the Jordan with us. They said, we'd rather stay on the east. Our people are tired. Our wives are tired. Our kids are tired. We just want to plant ourselves right here. So Moses says, go ahead. If that's what you want your land to be, there is no protection. Who are the first tribe to be taken over? Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. Think back to Peter. Peter says to Jesus, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will never do anything. But yet in Matthew 27, verse 58, what does it say about Peter after Jesus is arrested? That Peter followed Jesus at what? At a distance. There's always a danger when you follow the Lord at a distance. And that's again, and Reuben got lazy. A good Jew gets as close to the temple as you can. A good Jew gets as close to the promised land as you can. No, we'll be fine. We'll be on this side of the river. We'll be fine. No, you won't. You know who are the ones that get picked off by the enemy? It's the Christians that are just on the outside of camp. They're not involved. I mean, they love the Lord, but they're not going to be involved in stuff. They're not really in the Word. They're really not in prayer. They're really not in service. I mean, yeah, I mean, they show up, they do this, they do that, but they've become lazy. They park themselves on the other side of the river. They're following Jesus at a distance, and guess what happens? They get picked off just like that. Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben fall to Assyria because they chose to plant themselves on the wrong side of the Jordan. They should have crossed the Jordan, stayed in the protection of Israel. There is a protection in the body of Christ. But for some reason, we as believers do everything we can to not be accountable to the body of Christ. We want to be the Lone Ranger Christian, the Island Christian. We can do it on our own. That is a dangerous place to be. And if you go up to him and try to talk to him, oh, I'm fine, I'm good, don't worry about me, Pastor, I'm sure there's lots of other people that need help. They planted themselves on the wrong side of the Jordan, there's nothing you can do about it. So, what I want to finish with is this. We'll get into the rest of the stuff next week, and we'll finish this up before we get into the actual study in front of us. Lots of stuff just to ask you here real quick as we go through this. We've had lots of different people. We've seen the judgment on Ur, we've seen the judgment on Reuben, the judgment on Achan, but there's grace right in the middle of that. We don't see Jacob as we see Israel, because God wants to give you a new name as you're a new creation of God, the Lord. We see David having a son named Nathan. I tell you, right now, he may be, I don't know what the word is, I guess. He may be in some pretty serious conversations with the brother or sister of the Lord, and it's not going good. You never know. They may be hearing more about their things like David did. You may be the David that's being rebuked by somebody, and you don't want to see him again. Those people may be loving you more than what you realize, just like Nathan loved David. We see the prayer of Jabez. It's not about me, Lord, it's about you, Lord. I want to get out there and reach and touch as many people as I can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about you. 
But when we finish here with this, this let's finish with the women. They had victory. They had some wins. But they decided to camp. Oh, thanks, Justin. They decided to camp on the wrong side of the Jordan. They got ticked off. Peter followed Jesus at a distance. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Anybody have any final questions, comments, or anything? All right. We're going to continue our study in Chronicles next week. Bear with me. Get through the first, the first nine chapters, and then it picks up. And like I said, the way we're going to tackle this book is we're going to talk about the different kings, the good, the bad, the ugly. What can we learn from them? And it's going to be a fascinating study as we go through this. Remember, all Scripture is God. These people were given to us as an example, and as we go through these kings, we're going to see them as an example of what to do. Most important, you're probably going to see an example of what not to do. And you're going to get your kings in order. You'll have the whole history now. Take us pray. Heavenly Father, good to be here tonight. And I just want to pray if there's anybody here camping on the wrong side of the Jordan, Lord, speak to them. That is not a safe place to be. I pray, Lord, that we would not follow you at a distance, but we'd be right with you, right beside you, serving and loving and representing you. And Lord, do expand on who we can reach in touch as we go into work. You know, Lord, we, we don't work for them, we work for the King. We work for the King, Lord, praise and bless you. Lord, I pray for the uh, Kids Club and Holgate, that that would be an outreach for you, that generations would be touched. I pray for the outreach being ready to happen here in Hamler, that, that the people would just be responding as, as they show up to sing. I pray for that. I pray for the needles and the angel tree that those people receive that meal, receive those gifts, and they're told that we give this to you in the name of Jesus and the love of Jesus, that that would touch their hearts. Thank you for what you're doing and what you've done. It's all about you, Lord. We lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, it's 8 o'clock, um, so we'll have a quick time to prayer up here. I know some of you guys can't see you back. If you got something you want to pray for, pop on up. Like I said, it's getting late. If you got to get going, that's fine. You guys have a good week. You guys have a